Welcome to episode number 63 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about design of bulk material storage systems with Keith McGuire. Keith is Director of Structural Engineering at CST, headquartered out of Kansas City, Missouri. He has over 40 years experience with the company, which focuses on bolted tanks, domes, covers, and other storage solutions for bulk materials and for liquid storage as well. So Keith, I just want to say thank you, kind of start the episode off by saying thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge with the community today. You're welcome, Chris. I'm really glad to to be a part of this, so appreciate it. I'm excited as well. And I, I was first introduced to CST through a, a partnership, actually, between FIKE and Conversion Technology, CTI. And I really like the way they were going about this. You have your testing, your expertise, your hazard analysis, but also, you know, the group like yourself that does the actual implementation of, in your case, storage silos and other storage solutions. I thought it was a really good way to go about putting together you know, all three sides of the, the triangle, if you will, and this isn't necessarily the fire triangle, but, you know, you have your expertise, you have your consultants, but then you you can also get things implemented. So I really liked that when I was introduced to that, that partnership. CST subsequently came on to be a member company with Dust Safety Science, and we've actually tried to replicate this model for our upcoming online conference, the Digital Dust Safety Conference, where you have, you know, high-level theory and, and approaches and checklists and procedures and then also bring people in, they're actually implementing, um, explaining how to maintain systems. And CST is actually presenting on this topic of design of, of bulk material storage systems in regards to combustible dust safety. So this episode is really kind of a preview of that. It's giving you an idea, the, the listener, an idea of, of you know, what we're going to be covering on this you know, more in-depth topic or more, not the high level, not dust hazard analysis, but how do you actually go about implementing a specific storage solution? Um, and we'll actually have CST presenting at the conference as well. So I want to say thank you for Keith for that. And thank you for coming on the, the, the podcast today. So maybe a good place to start is, can you just give a summary of your, your background, your experience related to bulk storage solutions and with CST? Sure. Of course, uh, CST has a, has a background uh, of over 100 years of experience in providing uh, storage solutions for customers uh, from, you know, farm silos all the way into... Uh, into larger uh, facilities, grain elevators, and things of that nature. So we kind of run the whole gamut of, uh, of storage solutions and storage tanks and silos, both for liquids and for dry bulk tanks. And so we've been involved heavily in uh, in providing those types of of tanks and silos. And uh, in, in doing so, uh, you... Tend to uh, be exposed to different things that can happen to a tank, and and one of those things is the combustible dust and deflagration. So it kind of you know you you kind of get involved in that uh, automatically just by being in the in the dry bulk storage market. So it's it's more of a uh, we we like to be proactive now than reactive, which. Years ago, people were reacting to deflagrations and explosions, saying like, you know, what happened? What, what's going on here? Well, now, you know, and even NFPA, of course, has uh, has the deadline of next year of of being able to do this and actually, you know, be responsible, have the companies be responsible for their own combustible dust systems, how to, you know, to prevent them if they do happen. How how best to vent something like a storage tank or silo safely, 
and you know prevent injury is basically and property damage or uh, or foremost in in what you could accomplish by doing that it's probably been pretty interesting to see that change from you know a reactive community uh why why did this happen uh and then you know you blow the roof off your silo again oh it it happened again maybe we should should do something to now the requirements coming down mm-hmm. um and what keith is talking about there i think is the nfpa 652 requirements to have a dha done at your facility by september next year and there will actually be some uh, very dis- specific discussion on that within the conference and we may have even have some special special groups from the community coming in to talk about that so but on the on the storage silo process, um, we've had some folks on before talking about storage silo safety, but they've been mostly from the uh, fire and explosion realm. Where your background is actually in in that, but also in you know designing the systems for for prop for what they're used, supposed to be used for, which is you know storing and handling material. Can you give an overview of the different storage solutions that one might be looking at when they're you know going to store bulk materials? Yeah, there's a that's a good question, and so um, uh, Chris, let me let me go through a few of those with you. Uh, there are different types of the probably the most common way for dry bulk storage is gravity flow through the silo. So what you would have is a cylindrical vertical silo or tank for the gravity to come out for the product to come out of the tank using gravity, usually a conical what we would call a hopper that's somewhere fastened into the tank and the product, you open a slide gate, so to speak, it's to be simple, a rotary airlock or something like that. And the product gravity flows out of that opening into your, into your conveyor and into your process system. So uh, that's the most common way for people to uh, look at a system for storage of their product some products are not easily flowed by gravity, discharged by gravity, so uh, they need they need to be encouraged a little bit. So you might have to put uh, some air slides or some kind of device or uh, a vibrating discharger or something to persuade the product to come out in a gravity system. Sometimes that won't even work. So you may have say a flat bottom tank and a screw auger that would rotate in on top of the floor basically grabbing the material and discharging it into a into a center opening and then discharge below the floor where your conveyor systems can take those away so you've got free flowing product semi free flowing product and no flowing product basically for for the uh, auger system to to be incorporated so uh, uh cst we, we've seen all of those systems we uh, have experience in in all sorts of products and and uh, in doing so we can investigate the needs of the customer and what tank would work best for his situation of course there's testing that we encourage for flowability of the product as well as for the combustibility of the product. So those are two types of tests that an owner should perform to be able to get the right tank for the right product. And what kind of, so we're, we're pretty well versed here on the combustible dust testing. And we've had, you know, probably five or six episodes on it throughout the last 60, but 
for flow testing, what does that look like for the the customer? Do they send their sample to to you guys or to a lab or just if somebody was interested in that, what would that look like? Yeah, there it's a good question. There are uh, laboratories uh, available to do, and it's basically a friction test. So, you know, maybe one gallon of material of a representative sample that you're going to store, you can send it to us and we can take care of it, or we can guide you to a lab that would do that for you. And given the moisture content and things like that, that can all be adjusted to duplicate what you might have inside the tank at your facility. And so getting a representative sample, there is equipment there to do friction tests. uh, And we provide, of course, the interior surface of your tank and silo is very important. And our coatings are uh, specifically formulated to have low friction and durability. And so we have samples of our our various uh, coatings in these at these laboratories that they can use sometimes uh, stainless steel uh, would be required like a 2b finished which is a very slick surface and, and sometimes it's a hybrid of say powder epoxy in the cylinder and 2b stainless in the hopper portion but uh, testing the material you you get these friction angles under various pressures and there are calculations that we do to determine the slope of the hopper, uh, the size of the opening. Maybe if it's if it's pressure sensitive, you don't want a very tall tank. So we'll work with the customer on the geometry of the tank, whether it's tall and slender or a larger diameter and shorter. All of those play a, a significant role in getting the flow of the product out. Now. Talking about flow, there's two general theories on flow, and that one of which is a mass flow, where the product is basically first in, first out. So the product closer to the opening is the first product to come out, and then subsequently the product flows uniformly from from the bottom of the tank as it flows down. So mass flow is the most reliable type of flow. But if the product is is granular and uniform and easy flowing, uh, the flow could be designed as funnel flow, which would be a shallower hopper, and the product basically is uh, last in, first out. So it kind of flows from the top down through the center of the of the tank uh, out out of the outlet, and so they're both. They're both popular theories, and we can, depending on the test values that we get, determine whether you're better suited to a mass flow tank, which typically is more expensive. It's higher stresses, and so it's that's one trade-off for mass flow. A funnel flow, you can have a shallower hopper. You get more product in uh, in a certain certain size and uh, still get reliable flow. And it's more economical because the inherent forces in the tank is is less than what mass flow would produce. So the customer can be guided one way or the other depending upon the results of the testing of the product. Yeah, really good background. And there's a couple points that, actually, I'll probably give a summary of that, but there's maybe two points I want to touch on before 
Um, one was that you mentioned pressure sensitive. If the tank's pressure sensitive, it'd be better not to have a long um, slender tank. Can you just, uh, delve into that a bit more? I think the the listener may be interested in what that what that means. Well, the pressure sensitive is the product if it's compressible. So if it's a, if you compress this granular material, if it's like sticky, you don't want to compress it or it becomes worse. So the higher you would pile the product up in a tank, the more pressure the product exerts on itself. Does that make sense? That does, yes. So a tall tank may not be the best for as a a product that is compressible that may not want to flow once it's compressed and there's also like a uh, frangibility of of a product if it's uh, frangible that means it breaks up like we've sold tanks to cereal producers and you know you don't want to open your box of cereal and all of a sudden it's just pieces of Cheerios, you know, you want to see the Cheerio. So that is uh, something that's sensitive also in storage of, of uh, products such as that, that can be damaged just by the pressures of being stored or, you know, uh, it won't flow out if it's compressed. So there's a lot of science uh, involved in, in something that seems like it should be simple. Give me a tank, put my product in it, open the slide gate, it's going to come out. In a, in a perfect world, that would be nice. But it does require investigation, uh, study, and experience uh, to get something that day in and day out is going to work for you. Yeah, and you see the demos sometimes at trade shows where they have a little... Um, mock-ups with different angles and then different granularity of the material you can see it it you know you get your you get your final flow you get your rat hole or you get your you know your bridging and these are all different uh things that you don't want you, you want to flow nice and evenly at all times and and that's actually it's good for productivity but it's also good for combustible dust safety and fire and explosive safety as well I want to touch on one more tank type before we we move on in this discussion that was you mentioned domes uh, as uh, as an alternative kind of approach where have you seen these mostly used in as opposed to the kind of long slender silos or even the the broader silos where would you see a dome structure well we we provide a uh, dome structures when you're looking at large volumes of product like sand gravel things like that that you want to protect from from uh, the weather from getting wet so they they would typically you would have like a short containment circular circular uh, structure and put a dome on top of it and basically the height of the dome allows the product its angle of repose so you can still get uh, a large volume of of product in a short structure but you use a lot of real estate in doing that if you have room for it that's a very good way to uh, to put uh, a dome into practice and some dome of the dome could actually go all the way to the ground and you don't need a, a tank it, if, if you can uh, provide enough volume that way then you can put an aluminum dome right on a, a concrete slab so to speak and store your product that way but we do domes of all different sizes i mean just small diameter just to put a a roof on a tank 
to some of these that are, you know, 300 feet diameter or something at, say, a, a cement uh, manufacturing facility or where they need to store the cement and you don't want it to get wet. So uh, it's perfect example of basically large bulk ship unloading facilities, things where you're, uh, where you're storing a large volume of, of product. Yeah, I think we had back in a really early episode, episode 10 of the podcast with Alan Tilsley, he was talking about these um, kind of flat storage systems for, I, I believe it was coal storage within power systems in the UK. Uh-huh. And he, he was kind of giving the trade-off between, we well, can't see what's going on inside a silo, but you also don't have workers that can walk in there, but you can see what's going on inside this kind of flat bed storage. But then, you know, the fact that you can see it means you can spot a fire maybe that's happening, but then you have a worker that's in the vicinity. So he's giving some pros and cons on both sides for different types of systems like that. Well, I've seen uh, similar examples where they put remote cameras up in the up in the dome. And even with infrared and with the imaging we have nowadays, you can keep an eye on your product remotely uh, or even from your smartphone sitting at home you can you can see what your uh, your tank looks like so yeah you know, it's technology uh, has advanced enough to where you don't need the people in there to keep an eye on on such things yeah hey hi Siri what's the temperature in my tank today or uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. so I'll give a, a short summary that was a really good overview I think we haven't actually had on the the podcast before, but you mentioned a couple steps. So getting material tested so that you know the flowability characteristics, how easy does it flow? And this will really, you know, guide the type of system that you have. Is it if it's free flowing, then you go with a gravity system and you know a given kind of cone angle. If it's semi-free flowing, then you may need to add in, you know, a vibrating system or air slides or something to encourage that movement. And if it really doesn't flow at all, then you may need to have a, a more mechanical method like a flat bottom tank with an auger to get that through. And then you mentioned a couple different flow types. So mass flow, uh, first in, first out, which due to the high stress loads on the tank, you're going to need a stronger tank. You're going to need more material. And and because of aspects like that, it may be more expensive. Uh, and then last in, first out, which is a, a more of a you know a funnel flow or a shallower flow. And I, I'm sure there's other, you know, if you look at the science of, of powder, not powder, but a bulk material uh, movement. I'm sure there's all kinds of other categorizations and classifications, but just giving that kind of overhead summary from you know 20,000 feet, I think would be would be interesting for the audience. So I appreciate you going through that. Before we talk a bit about, uh, I think we'll probably move into combustible dust hazards around these these different types of tanks and ongoing maintenance. But is there anything else you want to leave off on that you think the audience might like to know from a background perspective for for storage silos or storage systems? Uh, well, that there there are a variety of of tanks out there, you know, from from uh, companies that make the square rectangular bins, like at feed mills and, and such, to bolt together tanks, which is what uh, what we are able to offer, as well as a shop welded tanks that we can offer, and some of the larger facilities. Uh, if, if, would require maybe a field welded tank. So there's there's a variety of of tanks out there, and uh, we're here to help uh, uh, ease the the comfort of the customer into making a wise decision on which type of uh, tank would be best suited to what his needs would be. 
I think that's an important point. It's not just, you know, buying the piece of equipment out of a catalog or, you know, picking it off the shelf, but actually getting it put in correctly and installed correctly at your facility is a, an important aspect. Um, choosing whether or not it's, you know, well, did your guys shop and shipped out or taken out in pieces and bolted? That's something you can guide the purchaser through uh, as they're, so they make a smarter decision. Exactly. In terms of um, combustible dust safety, uh, what kind of you know hazards have come up in these sort of systems, and what kind of precautions are people looking at? Well, Chris, the the best way uh, to uh, look at, at what would be the uh, available for a thinning of a deflagration in, in a tank, for example, there's basically two types of, of venting, and they're both uh, explained in NFPA 68. Uh, and so the two things that, that we deal with most of the time uh, to vent a deflagration in a tank or silo is the rupture panel or the explosion panels that are calibrated to burst at a specific pressure uh, in case of an overpressure uh, inside the tank, which could be caused by a deflagration of the product. To safely vent that pressure safely out of the tank, usually outdoors, hopefully, and still save the tank so you can reuse it by putting, you know, new panels on or whatever. The second thing that that we can uh, look at is a weak seam roof, and that is uh, something specifically designed so the entire roof of the tank would separate and uh, hopefully be restrained, which we can calculate restraint devices to keep it from flying away from you. And so lifting the roof of the tank up and bending the deflagration through that way. And so those are the two options that are most predominant in, uh, in like a circular vertical storage tank. And what kind of um, situations would you maybe see one being used more frequently than the other? Well, they they each have their, their advantages and disadvantages. Uh, the wick steam roof is the most economical because what you provide, like on a bolted tank, you put smaller bolts around the edge of the where the roof attaches to the cylinder, and make a, basically you're making a weak link in the tank. So in case of an overpressure situation, the sidewalls and hopper of the tank stay where they're supposed to, and the roof uh, is free to lift off because of the undersized uh, bolts. But yet, they're strong enough to keep to, to provide a seal so that you know if it rains or anything like that, that uh, it keeps keeps the product in the tank and keeps Mother Nature from getting in the tank. So. The wick seam roof is the most economical. It's also it also has uh, when that event happens, you have a lot of repairs to make. You have to replace the roof, usually the upper portion of the cylinder. But you know it it might be once in a lifetime event. The customer's willing to take that risk. It is scientifically calculated. You're following NFPA 68 guidelines, but yet you could 
lose all the equipment that's on top of the tank, like your conveyors, dust collectors, pressure relief valves, and you're also limited to the amount of weight you could put on the tank, so on the roof. So it has to be, because basically you're providing a part of a tank that's functioning as a rupture panel. It's also dangerous. You don't want to be walking up on the roof. You want to limit access and make sure everything's locked out for that device to uh, be there in case of a of an upset condition. The rupture panels basically provide the same functionality as the roof, the weak seam roof, but you design the roof of the tank stronger so it stays on and let the rupture panels uh, burst and vent the deflagration safely away from the inside of the tank. So the rupture panels are more scientific. They're they're more dependable, but the expense is there too that you have a, a tank that's thicker than it really needs to be just for s- storing the product because you do have the uh, P-RED pressures to resist during the deflagration. So you've got a stronger tank and you've got uh, panels that uh, would probably be all the way around. In in most cases, the tanks are large enough that you've got numerous panels so that the cost is there, but yet the uh, post-emergency repair is a lot less than what would be on a on a weak seam roof. So you purchase more panels, both and back on, and you're back to business. Now, another uh, a disadvantage of the rupture panels is that has to be airspace. You can't, and they're usually up above the, the uh, upper part of the cylinder, so that you have to limit your product capacity below that area because the panels are sensitive enough that they won't resist the uh, the product pushing against the inside of them. So uh, you end up with a, a slightly taller tank than you really would need compared to the volume you can get with a uh, weak seam roof because you can fill the tank completely up with that with uh, that option. Yeah, there's some things I didn't actually think about in terms of the the time required. Um, as you mentioned, ideal case of the rupture panel, you're you have it blow out and and you could even have a backup on site so you could literally be you know back up and running once you clean up your material inside whichever you need to whatever you need to do there but you could be back up and running um, certainly same day where if you you know you blow the the top off the tank in a in a designed way but you also destroy some of the conveying system or the the bucket elevator or whatever the, the components are up there then you know, you could have longer lead time. So there is, there's positives and negatives to, to both solutions. Um, and as you say, facility siting is also going to come into play. Where, where can we safely vent this thing? Maybe upwards is the only, the only safe option. Yeah, so there's lots of, lots of things to consider there. Yeah, and as, as long as you know, you're putting the weight on the roof, we've actually designed platforms above the roof where you can install your dust collector, you can install your conveyor equipment, and then you put a flexible boot between that device and the roof of the tank so that the roof can can still function in an emergency situation, 
but all your equipment is up on a platform uh, out of harm's way, so to speak. And that would limit the post-event uh, uh, repairs also but by installing your equipment above the roof of the tank. And then you have the, the tank itself uh, that would require uh, re- some rebuilding and, and modifications too. Okay. Before we get on the call, you were talking. We were talking a bit about uh, other kind of hazards in terms of, in terms of spontaneous combustion that in in the tanks. What has your experience been with with those sorts of uh, systems, and maybe what kind of materials lend themselves more to to having spontaneous combustion? Yeah, you know, we, there's been a lot of discussion about the the fire triangle where you need the fuel, the you know, and and the oxygen and uh, oxygen and heat. And so uh, we talk about, well, the heat would would probably come from, you know, moving equipment, a conveyor, bearing, getting hot, some kind of spark from a motor or something igniting a dust cloud. But uh, we've, we have had uh, events in some of our tanks, which was successfully vent uh, through a weak seam roof, where they were storing coal, and the coal in this particular instance was not uh, circulated or it set too long inside the tank. There were some places where it would collect and not flow completely out, and so it would it, it sit there and actually spontaneously combusted. It created its own heat just from spontaneous combustion. Uh, enough where it caused a, a fire and uh, an explosion or a deflagration. And this particular tank was about 80 foot diameter and, and probably 72 foot high or something with a conical weak seam welded roof on it. And it did exactly what it was supposed to do. The the roof uh, separated, the fireball belched out, and the fire department was notified. They put the fire out, but we designed the rafter system in that tank to be separate from the roof. So the roof is just floating un- unsupported except at the edge. And uh, personally, I inspected the job site after that happened. I said, all you need to, to buy is some more sheet metal to build a new roof. Your your trusses are fine. The conveyor is supported off the trusses, uh, and they were back in business in just a matter of days. So, uh, and I said, but you need to fix fix the flowability there in the tank, fix those places where pockets of coal was allowed to accumulate and not flow out. So uh, this doesn't happen again. So that was uh, one instance uh, that uh, spontaneously spontaneous combustion actually caused. Uh, the deflagration. Some of these uh, biofuels that uh, are popular now for burning to to make energy, uh, the switch grasses and things like that, if there's enough moisture in some of those uh, products, uh, spontaneous combustion can also occur, and that would be uh, uh, detrimental. Uh, we've we've done tanks for some of those uh, industries and installed explosion panels and weak seam roofs 
for that industry as well because of spontaneous combustion possibilities. Yeah, so you mentioned circulating the product to avoid that, and you mentioned avoiding kind of pockets accumulating. What's the best way to actually to, to do that uh, practically? Is it to um, empty the contents of the tank or to cycle it into another one, or just uh, curious of how the, the best way to go about doing that is? Yeah, the best way is, uh, in this instance, is to provide a mass flow storage system. So when in mass flow, all the product is moving when you discharge the product. So most we, we encourage, you know, circulating just if you're not using the product, go ahead and turn your conveyors on, have a mechanism where you draw out of the bottom and circulate it back up into the top of the tank. And you can also put sensors. There are sensors uh, that temperature cables, so to speak, that would hang from the roof of the tank or the rafters that would detect uh, hot spots in the product bed itself. So you'll get a head start on saying, hey, it's time to recirculate this tank because I'm getting some detection that uh, the temperature's increasing inside the tank. Okay, that makes sense. And you mentioned the circulate, circulation as being one way to avoid spontaneous combustion. What other what other ongoing maintenance requirements should companies be thinking about in these sort of systems? As far as maintenance on your storage tank, uh, a visible inspection can go a long way. So just looking at the, the tank periodically, uh, inspecting any places where there might be corrosion occurring or product. Uh, seeping out of, of an area of the tank or something or water coming in. Basically, you know, a visual inspection is foremost in, in uh, maintaining your, your tanks. So keep an eye on the tanks, have a, have a, a, a PM system uh, in place, climb up the tanks periodically, look inside through the manways or hatches, and just you know, be aware that uh, that you can you can have a, a long life for your tank just by periodically and visually inspecting it. When if it gets too far and and you've uh, neglected uh, the tanks to a point where there's corrosion, uh, we can provide an inspection service. We can do the inspections for you. We can you know look at uh, any loss of, of thickness in various parts of the tank through testing. We can uh, have cameras that uh, would peer down inside the tank to uh, inspect the underside of the roof, for example. But uh, uh, CST offers that service as well uh, to uh, make sure your assets are are taken care of and that uh, we're there to provide any repairs as well uh, if pieces need to be replaced or uh, recoded or things of that nature. Okay, I think that's a good place to leave off. We've kind of went through the whole the whole life cycle now of getting material tested, uh, picking and choosing the right tank parameters, the right coding for your materials uh, so that they they flow in the, the way that you need. Talked about some of the combustible dust hazards, um, and then also talked about you know ongoing maintenance. What should you be doing and thinking of? And and we've seen cases where tanks have have ruptured because of 
because of say rust or wall thickness decreasing and and it, it it's allowed to go to such a case where um, the tank cracks and then material spills out and we've seen that actually cause explosions in different parts i think we had one in a in new mexico in 2017 that had a pretty large coal dust explosion that way um, and then of course there's the grain there's the grain flash fire video that everyone's probably seen of the the big uh the big metal tank falling over and and dust getting kicked up and the, the guy jumping over his truck trying to get away from it um so you do need to inspect these systems yeah bad things can happen if if the good things don't happen first so uh yeah it's uh, you need to take care of uh, of what the equipment that you have for sure. Yeah, we'll grab a couple of videos. The team will pull those and put them in the, the show notes for this episode at uh, dustsafetyscience.com slash 63 for this episode as well. So, Keith, I want to say thank you for coming on, sharing your, your knowledge with the community. Um, it's been really informative for me, uh, bulk material flow characteristics, and and that is not my my background. I'm a combustion and, and kind of explosion I guess not for lack of a better word. So it helps for me to to learn from people that have been doing it for so long. So I want to say thank you for coming on and, and thank you for also coming on, sharing your knowledge at the, the Digital Dust Safety Conference coming up in February as well. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I, I appreciate it. Excellent. I look forward to talking to you soon at the conference. All right. We'll see you there. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Keith McGuire of CST, headquartered at Kansas City, Missouri. Keith is the director of structural engineering there. We've been talking all about designing of bulk material storage systems, um, in particular systems that are handling potentially materials that can potentially result in combustible dust. So we talked about quite a big summary through how to determine the flowability of your materials, what that means, what type of tank you might need, through to maintenance requirements, um, and how to avoid things like spontaneous combustion, how to properly vent a, a tank should an explosion happen, what does that mean for downtime? What does that mean for cost and design of the initial system? So we covered a lot of ground. You can connect with Keith. We'll put his contact information in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 63. will also be uh, him himself and the CS team will also be inside the Dust Safety Academy platform um, for the conference. So you can connect with them there. Um, as I mentioned on the outside of this episode, the, the thought process behind this event is it goes really beyond just the concepts in theory. Yes, we're spending a whole day talking about the important concepts for hazard prevention, for hazard identification, for case examples and case studies. And we're going to be talking about that from all around the world, from the Middle East to North America to um, the UK to South America. Uh, but we also want to go beyond that and bring in people that are experts and specialists in different processing equipment, in storage silos and bucket elevators and hoses um, and you know dust collection equipment to give you someone to bounce those ideas off of, of how to actually get these implemented in your system at your facility. So if you really enjoy this episode, um, you can look at the event itself for the conference at www.ddsc2020, that's 2020.com. And I look forward to bringing you another great guest on the podcast next week on the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Mm-hmm.